Welcome to the City Alliance Church Podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our messages. Our prayer is that you would listen, learn, and be inspired to love God, love others, and serve the world. Subscribe and share these messages to bless others. Here's this week's message. Thanks, Robert. All right, well, welcome. How you doing, City Alliance? Um, before we jump in, just let's welcome everyone who's watching on Facebook right now. What's up, Facebook? How you doing? In your air-conditioned homes watching? Or by the beach? Just kidding, no bitterness there. Uh, my name is Debbie Downer. I'll be your pastor for today. I'm just kidding. Um, but you know what? This is kind of a tough series. We're talking about lament, the space between pain and praise. And one of the things we've been talking about in this series is one of the ways that God grows your faith is he actually allows you to experience suffering. He allows you to experience difficult, painful things. And when that happens, our response is to lament those things. To actually acknowledge, what that does is acknowledge the fact that there's brokenness in us and there was brokenness in the world that we lived in. You know, recently I heard a pastor who was talking about lament and he said, you know, lament, it's not our pain. It's actually not our grief or loss or sadness. It's actually what we do with our pain, our loss, and our sadness. When we feel those emotions, those are good emotions. You know, I like to think of emotions as kind of like the check engine light on your dashboard. It's important to feel them, to allow them to come to the surface, and then direct them towards God. Because when you direct them towards God and not other people or let them passively, aggressively, but when you direct them towards God, transformation happens. God's grace transforms us in that moment. Maybe in the moment you don't feel it. Maybe in the moment you don't understand how God is at work in this. But when you look back, you can go, man, I saw how God was at work there. You know, maybe you you heard the song, even when I don't feel it, you're what? You're working. That's right. But you know, the the truth of the matter is many of us, we don't really like to deal with suffering or pain or or any of that stuff. Maybe you grew up in a family that was like, you know, we just don't do sadness. You know, I'm an Enneagram 7. If that means anything to you, that means I'm always looking for a good time. You know, if it's negative, I'm going to lean away. I don't really want to deal with it. In fact, um, you know, know, my wife Jackie, she's really good at reminding me, you know, sometimes that's good because I can always see the positive in things. Like there's always a silver lining. But the negative is that I sometimes am not in touch with reality. Uh, I can sometimes oversimplify things and, and do things like that. And, you know, I remember I was talking to a, with a friend of mine who said, you know, Nathan, in our family, you know, he grew up in Puerto Rican, he goes, in our family, we didn't do sadness, we did salsa. Like, that's how we coped. We, we just, we're just having a good time. And so th- in this series, uh, we're trying to offer a little bit of a correction that sometimes we see in our secular culture, which is denying pain. But even in the church, we try to come off as shiny, happy people, like everything's good all the time, you know, and God is good all the time and all that stuff. And we know that's true. God is good. But life is sometimes not good. And what do we do when that happens? Well, we, we lament. We grieve. We, we, we share those things out loud. You know, one of my um, favorite spiritual authors is a Catholic priest named Henry Now. And here's a picture of Henry. He's Dutch. And um, I remember when I was in my 20s, I was actually experiencing a time in my life where there was just a lot of grief, a lot of confusion, and a lot of doubt. Um, you know, there are a couple things that were going on. One, you know, I was wrapping up my college year, so there was like, what am I going to do next? Uh, my college girlfriend and I, we had broken up. And so, you know, I'm kind of heartbroken trying to figure out what was going on there. There was a lot of tension and conflict in my family, and I was like trying to navigate that. And I was also struggling 
struggling with my own doubts in faith and, and trying to figure out, you know, how do I do, how, what does faith look like in my life, things like that. And by God's design and God's sovereignty, his book, Can You Drink the Cup, fell into my lap. This, by the way, is a great book. If, you, if you're wondering, you know, how do I, what is God doing with my suffering and my pain? This is a great resource. Like, I encourage you to pick it up. It's a short read, so if you're not a reader, it's short. And the, and the letters are really big. The font is really big, so you'll really enjoy that. And if you're like, I'm still not a reader, find someone who is, have them read it, and they'll give you a book report. That's, that's the way to do that. But one of the things in his, that he reflects on is the story that Jesus tells when two of his apprentices or two of his interns or his disciples, they, they come up to Jesus and they're like, yo, Jesus, can I be on your left and your right hand? Translation, Jesus, when you become the king of the world, can we like be rich and powerful and important and influential just like you? Like, can, can we have that power and influence? And Jesus responds to them by saying this, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the frozen margarita a cup? Wait, that's not what, sorry, my mind's in a different place. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of what? Suffering. I am about to drink. So Jesus is like, guys, you have no clue what you're talking about. You have no clue what's about to go on. Don't you know that in a moment, the cup that I'm going to be talking about here is the cup of my betrayal. It's going to be the cup of my uh, torture. It's going to be top, uh, the cup of my false imprisonment and eventually my murder, torture and murder. And so, you know, these guys are kind of young, kind of naive. And so when Jesus asks them, are you able to drink the cup? They're like, yeah, Jesus, we got this. We can do this. We are able. <laughs> but, but the truth is, I think all of us this morning, we are carrying some kind of cup with us today, aren't we? For some of us, that cup is a cup of disappointment. It's a cup of pain. Maybe it's even the cup of disillusionment. Maybe for, you know, as I chat with different folks in our church that are going through different things, for some, it's the cup of abuse. You experienced abuse when you were younger, and it's something that never leaves you. And so you carry that cup wherever you go. For some of you, it's, it's the cup of health issues. I think about that because, you know, my knee is not working the way it used to. But I know for many of you, there's chronic health issues. Maybe doctors can't give you the diagnosis yet, but you're carrying that cup. Or maybe as you get older, your health is going downward and your body's letting you down. But it's not just you that carries that cup. Your spouse carries that cup. Your partner carries that cup. When they suffer, you suffer. And so you carry that cup. Or, or maybe it's the cup of disappointment with God. Maybe there's still unanswered prayer in your life. And you're like, God, I've been praying for my dad's salvation for years. And he seems like he's going further away from you rather than closer. Or God, I've been asking you to take away this sin every single day. But it hasn't gone. It's still there. The temptation is still there. And you carry this cup with you. And the question is, can you drink the cup? Can, can you keep holding it in the midst of it? And, you know, whenever we go through pain and loss, you know, we, we talked about some of the themes we see in Lamentations. When we first started this series, we talked about what do you do when you experience pain and loss? Like, how do you lament? What does that look like? Uh, then we talked about how do you help other people in your life who are experiencing pain and loss? How do you actually come alongside them and help them? And, and last week, Dr. Bell Sterling talked about how do you turn to God when it seems like everything's falling apart. But today, I want to talk about what do you do when God is silent? What do you do 
when it, God doesn't seem like he's answering your prayers, it's like you're praying, it just like hits the ceiling and it comes back down. What do you do when you're not where you want to be in life? What do you do when the stuff that's happened in the past, it seems like it's still holding you back and keeps you from moving forward? You've asked God for the healing and it hasn't come yet. You've asked God for the change of the situation or the change of the circumstances, for healing of the trauma, and it hasn't happened yet. You know, something uh, that I noticed when I was reading through Lamentations, I don't know if you guys have been reading through it, but something I noticed that I confirmed with different scholars is this, is that God is completely silent in the book of Lamentations. He doesn't say anything. Sometimes when you read scripture, he sends an angel, uh, you, you get a voice, you get something, but Lamentations, you get nothing. He's not saying anything. And instead, you read the words of the poet prophet Jeremiah, who is pouring out his anger, his sadness, his rage, his disappointment with God. And not only is he disappointed with God, he's also disappointed with the people of God. You ever felt that way, disappointed with God's people? Jeremiah is pouring all that out. And, in, and he's a literary, you know, literally he's brilliant, and he, and he puts his poetry together, and he's saying all these things to God, but God doesn't talk back. God doesn't say anything. He's silent. So as we go into Lamentations 4, one of the things we need to realize is this is kind of a, kind of a, um, a summary section of the book before it goes to the crescendo. Next week, um, uh, Traxler is going to kind of wrap up this, this, the, 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 the book for us. But chapter 4 is, is kind of like it summarizes all of the confusion and the pain and, and, and the hurt. And, and really, when you read chapter 4, you kind of, it just feels exhausted. The people feel exhausted. Jeremiah, you can feel his exhaustion. He's like, I've been lamenting. You know, I love uh, the words of the Korean-American scholar Sung Chan Ra. He wrote in his book Prophetic Lament, he writes this, The unfortunate reality is that the circumstances that demanded lam lament in the first place continue in Lamentations 4. By the way, let's pause for a second. Anyone of you feel that way? It's like, God, my world's falling apart and I'm lamenting. I I'm doing what I'm supposed to do but nothing's changing. It still stays the same. The circumstances haven't moved forward. He goes on to say this, Lamentations 4 reminds us to persevere even as our energy fades. The conditions of suffering persist, so we must persist. And if we need to persist in our suffering, we need to realize that the strength and the energy and the power to do that, it doesn't come from you, it doesn't come from me, it comes from above. Can I get an amen, church? Amen. amen. So how do we do that? How do we lean into that? So let's actually walk through this a couple sections of this passage together so we can learn what to do when God is silent. It says this in verse 1, it says this, How the gold has lost its luster. Even the finest gold has become dull. The sacred gemstones lie scattered in the streets. By the way, it's sacred gemstones, not righteous gemstones, like the TV show, in case any of you are aware of that. But what's going on here? Like, I love the rich imagery that Jeremiah is using in here. When he talks about this, he's like, the gold has lost its luster. The gold is useless. It doesn't shine anymore. It doesn't, ha it, it doesn't buy anything anymore. Essentially what Jeremiah is saying is, God, this is getting old. God, we're still suffering. We're still hurting. And it doesn't seem like anything's changing. We are praying to you. We're seeking you. But can we move on to something else, God? Like, it seems like it's the same thing. Skip down a couple verses in verse 9. It says this, Those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. Starving, they lay waste away for lack of food from the fields. Uh, you know, 
It says this, tender-hearted women have cooked their own children. They've eaten them to survive the siege. And some of you are thinking, man, Nathan, you really know the, the best verses to pick out of this passage. It seems so happy and joyful. <laughs> but I want us to remember the context here is that Jerusalem is being judged. They're experiencing the justice of God. God had actually called Israel to be a people that would reflect and show what God was like to the rest of the world. But instead, they chose to be selfish. They chose to go after other gods. And what they did was they oppressed other people. They committed some of the most egregious acts of evil and injustice in history. And God spent 500 years trying to warn them, guys, I have to punish sin. Guys, I have to bring justice to this evil. He spent 500 years trying to, you know, encourage them. But eventually, they experienced the cup of the wrath of God. And when we talk about wrath, it just means the righteous, the right judgment of the justice of God. Look what it says in verse 14. Verse 14 says this, Not a king in all the earth, no one in all the world would have believed that an enemy could march through the gates of Jerusalem. So I want to pause for a second here. Jeremiah was like, I didn't think Jerusalem would fall. Like, like Jerusalem was like God's city. Like, we had the temple in here, and then the temple was God's house. So, so we can do whatever we want. We can sin as much as we want, because God is never going to let anything happen to his house. And yet, in shock, it all fell apart. Because I think one of the things that led Israel to their sin was that they had become entitled. Say entitled, church. Entitled, it's not just for millennials, it's for all of us, okay? See, here, here's the thing. Jeremiah goes on, he says, the reason why the political leaders failed, it wasn't just them, it was also the spiritual leaders. He says this, yet it happened because of the sins of her prophets and the sins of her priests who defiled the city by shedding innocent blood. Can I just say something, guys? As your pastor, you better believe this made me pause. It made me pause, and it made me pray and say, Lord, please give me humility. Please, as leaders of our church, please let us walk in humility. Because I don't need to tell you, there is example after example after example of pastors who have failed. Churches that have failed. And institutions, Christian institutions that have failed. And when that happens... It's heartbreaking, and, and you know, there's all these different reasons, and every situation is different, but if we really had to peel back, I really think that the root of it is entitlement. We, the entitlement basically means that we have this sense that we're, we're better, we, 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 deserve, we deserve more. Here's the thing, it's arrogance at the end of it. And oftentimes, the only cure for entitlement, because I think as a culture, it's easy for us to get entitled, Sometimes the only cure is that God allows suffering. Suffering erodes entitlement. Because suffering reminds us of what reality is. It reminds us that there are limits to our humanity. There are limits to our privilege. There's limits to our abilities. And so when spiritual leaders and political leaders use their influence and platform to hurt or harm others, God takes it personally. In fact, look how personally he takes it here in verse 16. It says this. It says, the Lord himself. So he didn't send an angel. He didn't send a prophet. It says, the Lord himself has scattered the corrupt leaders. And he no longer helps them. 
You know, I said this a few weeks ago that, you know, some people get really, really stoked about, yeah, God, bring judgment to America. But remember, he starts with judgment in the church. He starts with followers of Jesus first before he goes anywhere else. And so he spends more time in this passage talking about Jerusalem's sins, but eventually it talks about another nation called Edom. Edom was a neighbor of Jerusalem, and they were supposed to be an ally. So when Babylon came to basically come and attack Jerusalem, they're waiting for Edom to come and help. But instead, Edom just laughs at them. They're like, ha, you guys, you, you think we're going to help you? We're not going to help you. We're going to let, ba- we're going we're to cheer for Babylon. Go Babylon, take out Jerusalem. Woo! But you know what happens? They're angry because Jerusalem feels betrayed. Have you ever experienced betrayal? Maybe it was a coworker who took credit for something you did and you're angry about it. Maybe it's from a spouse. Maybe it's from a family member, but you felt that betrayal and it makes you feel angry and you want to get revenge, you want to get them. But, but then you're like, well, no, I'm a Christian. I'm not supposed to have negative feelings or strong feelings. But look how Jeremiah responds to the betrayal from Edom. He says this, he says, are you rejoicing in the land, O people of Edom? But you, oh, you must drink from the cup of the Lord's wrath. Jeremiah simply says, laugh it up, Edom. <laughs> laugh it up. Go ahead. Keep laughing. Keep laughing. God's coming for you next. And he's going to pour out his wrath on you and you're going to get it. And he's, you're going to feel that same power. So when we feel those emotions of negativity and betrayal, remember, it, it's not feeling those things aren't the sin. What do you do with them? We lament. We give them to God. But this passage, and here's why I love chapter 4, and this will go into 5 next week when Andrew talks about this. It ends with hope. Look at verse 22. It says this. Oh, beautiful Jerusalem, your punishment will end. You will soon return from exile. So one day, your pain will end. Think about what's in your cup right now. I don't know what you brought with you to church today. But one day, your pain will end. One day, your health will be whole. One day, your heartbreak will be healed. One day, you'll have the body that's perfect without disease whether in this life or the next. See, that's the promise that the poet Jeremiah gives. You see, Jeremiah is writing a poem to a God that is silent. God does not speak about his complaints. God doesn't comment. There's no commenter. We don't know what God is thinking or, or feeling as we read this passage. So real practically, what do we do? When you go through a time, and by the way, I believe every follower of Jesus will experience a time where you've experienced the silence of God. What do we do in those moments? I want to give you three responses in this passage. The first is this, is when God is silent, it is actually an indicator that it's time to take a direction for deeper reflection. It's, it's God's direction for deeper reflection. You, you see, what Jerusalem thought about themselves was, we are God's chosen people, period. We can do whatever we want, we can treat people any way we want, and that's just the way it is. So when Jerusalem fell, which, by the way, they believe that God lived in the temple, like he, ha- he occupied that space. When Jerusalem fell, when the temple fell, it literally, there was a deeper reflection that needed to take place. See, Jeremiah spent weeks, months, years pondering, arguing, writing, rewriting, and composing this po- these poems to really find out what was going on here. In fact, one of the shocking things for, that for Jeremiah and for the people that they couldn't believe was in verse 12 where it says this, not a king. Not a king in all the earth, no one in all the world would have believed that an enemy could march through the gates of Jerusalem. Yet it happened. We, there, a translation, we thought this could never happen. 
You know, Jerusalem, it's too big to fail. Jerusalem's like the Titanic. They don't need a bailout. We, we got this no matter what. But here's the thing. When Jerusalem fell, it prompted deeper reflection. God, what is going on here? What does it mean to be God's people? What does justice mean? How is justice and our sin connected? You see, when we're in times of suffering, what it means is our easy answers for how God works, they don't work anymore. And when they don't work anymore, it can be terrifying. But it also is an invitation to go deeper, to ask deeper questions. I remember... Um, you know, I, I think this can be really hard for Christians, because I think as Christians, we, we assume that, okay, if I'm a believer, I have all the answers, everything's all good, like everything's all set for me. Uh, but the reality is, spiritual formation is a process. God is transforming us in a process. And I remember um, in college, or actually right out of college, I was, I was in a small group, and it was a small group of guys, we'd meet every week, uh, and we'd really just kind of talk about some really honest stuff. And, and, and honestly, like, it was really like uncomfortably honest at times. We were talking about temptations that we were struggling with. We were sharing our doubts. We were showing, you know what, Nathan, I, we had people that were in that group that said, Nathan, I don't know if I really believe that Jesus is God. Like, I, and we're really just honestly sharing those things. We had one guy in our group who's just sharing, you know, Nathan, I'm really struggling with my gender identity. Like, I don't know what to do with these feelings, and I just want to share this with this group. And the reason why I think we were able to share so honestly and vividly is because we felt safe. We felt that we were in a place where we could safely reflect on our struggles honestly. And guys, I just want to say this, man. I really believe that the church should be the safest place for us to struggle with our sins. Amen? I believe the church should be the safest place where we can come and bring our brokenness. We can come and bring our dysfunction, our confusion, and our doubts. This should be the place that we can bring all of those things so that people can be heard, loved, and cared for. Now, I am fully aware that the church of Jesus Christ does not always live up to that. I just know that. We don't, we don't always do that well. We don't always do it right. But we can get better. I believe that. Because, you see, I believe the church is not a museum for saints. It is a hospital for sinners. It's a place for the broken. You see, oftentimes when, when, when God is silent, he invites us to go deeper, to reflect deeper. But sometimes God's silence is because of unconfessed sin. There, there's something in our lives that is not in line with what, the way God wants us to be and live. And, you know, that's, it's a time for reflection. And if we see what those are, we can confess our sins and, and kind of be put back into fellowship. But sometimes we feel God's silence and we haven't done anything wrong. In fact, God's silence provokes faithful follow-through. God invites us to keep going. You see, sometimes God is silent and it's not your fault. It's not a sin issue, but really it's because he will actually remove his presence from us so that he can actually take us deeper in faith. So it's not about emotion, it's not about what we feel, but it's about following him and trusting him faithfully. Uh, I remember the promise here that we see, that we saw in chapter 3. It says this, chapter 3 from last week. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each what? morning, which means God gives us enough grace and mercy each and every day. See, the furnace of transformation, if we, you know, we ask to be transformed to be like Jesus, it's going to be when God is silent. And I think a great example of this is Mother Teresa. Um, I think all of us have heard of Mother Teresa, right? Anyone like, who's Mother Teresa? No idea. Yeah, I think everyone's heard of of Mother Teresa. Uh, My wife likes to call her Mama T. 
So I'll be referring to her as Mama T from this point forward. Uh, but Mama T, she actually, as, as a woman, as a young lit woman, felt called to go to Calcutta, India, and literally just love the poor and the dying. So she would literally go to Calcutta, and if someone was poor, she would take them in. If they were dying, she'd hold them and be with them. And she'd literally be the last person with people that were dying. And she ended up starting a ministry there called the Missionaries of Charity. And, you know, she simply would love and cared for the forgotten people of Calcutta. But in December of 1979, Mama T received the Nobel Peace Prize. Like, this is like the highest achievement of, of a good person, right? And I'll be honest, like, I don't always like to talk about Mama T as an example, because I know what some of you are thinking right now. Some of you are thinking, bro, I can't relate to Mother Teresa. She, she's, she's literally a saint. Like, she's actually a saint. She is Saint Teresa. Like, she is, like, better than, like, all of us. Like, there, there, there's no way that, I, you know, I have the temperament or the kindness or the goodness uh, of Mother Teresa. And, and listen, I get that, right? We, I think we're all like, okay, Mother Teresa, like, you're amazing. But here's where I think we can relate to her, and we didn't know about this till years later after her death. You see, her, her, um, her missionaries actually published her private journals and letters. By the way, you're not allowed to publish my private journals and letters. You will burn them, okay? Her church wouldn't let her do that. I'm just telling you. That, anyway. Um, but like one of the things uh, that she wrote three months before receiving the Nobel Peace Prize was this. She wrote these words. Jesus has a very special love for you, talking to a friend of hers. But as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and I do not see. Listen and do not hear. The tongue moves in prayer but does not speak. I want you to pray for me, that I let him have free hand. So for over 50 years, Mother Teresa never felt God's presence in her life. Think about that. Mother Teresa, St. Teresa, probably one of the most, not just incredible Christians, but women in the world, did not experience God's presence. Now, did she do anything wrong? No. no. No more, no less than us. Was there any hidden sin in her life? I, I, don't, I don't think so. See, uh, St. Teresa was experiencing what many Christians call the dark night of the soul. Maybe you heard, I think uh, Dr. Bellsterling talked a little bit about that last week, but literally this is a phenomenon that Christians have talked about for decades. It's literally a time where you cannot sense the presence of God. It's like you read the Bible and it doesn't speak to you. It's like you pray and it just doesn't connect. And when that happens, there is something that is happening deeper. When God is silent, he's actually purifying your desires at a deeper level. He is transforming you and he's preparing to use you. And listen, I hope that none of you experience what Mother Teresa did. Fifty years is a long time. But I think she understood that God was doing something in her that was deeper than she could ever comprehend. Look what she wrote in a, in a prayer to Jesus. She says these words, If this brings you glory, if souls are brought to you with joy, say joy, church, I accept all to the end of my life. See, for Mother Teresa, joy was not a feeling or an emotion. It was a status, a status. She understood that even if she didn't feel it, God was still working. He was still moving. So in the meantime, what did she do? Well, in those 50 years, you know what she did. She continued to read her Bible every morning. It was part of what her sisters of charity did. They would pray together. They would have meals together. She would serve. 
every single day she would continue to serve in Jesus' name. The Jesus she couldn't sense or feel at the time. So maybe that's some of you right now. Maybe right now you, the pain that you're carrying is the dark night of the soul. God is actually taking you deeper. You wouldn't, you're like, I would not have gone this way, Jesus. This would not have been what I chose. But this is what he chose for you. And when we're in these moments when God is silent and you're like wondering what he's doing, this brings us to the third piece here. God's silence also helps us to remember pain will end. One day the silence will end. One day the pain will end. And we, we see this promise in verse 22. It says this, O beautiful Jerusalem, your punishment will end. You will soon return from exile. I need to tell you this. If you are a follower of Jesus in this room, if you know that Jesus you know, is your Lord and Savior, you know that one day pain will end. Pain is temporary, but God's victory is eternal. Amen? See, one day your prayer that you've been praying, it's going to be answered one day. Maybe not in the way that you thought. One day your healing is going to come. You may get healed in this life, but you'll definitely get healed in the next. If you're a follower of Jesus, we know that one day our chronic pain, our doubts, our spiritual pain, our emotional pain, our traumas, all of that will be erased in a blink of an eye when we are face to face with our Savior. That's why I, I love the words of John that he writes in Revelation where he says this, He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow, or crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever. See, that's why in this life we lament the brokenness of our world today so we can celebrate in the world to come. For followers of Jesus, this isn't where it ends. There's more. So in the meantime, what do we do with this? How, how do we live in the meantime? What do we do when there's so much to lament? And even though we need to move on, the stuff that we're lamenting doesn't move on. So I think some of you know this, uh, I grew up in the great state of New Jersey. Please don't hold that against me if you hate New Jersey. Um, it's also the armpit of the nation, I get that too. But you know, growing up in, in New Jersey, um, we had a very large Jewish population there. A lot of my friends, you know, I'd go to their bar mitzvahs, their bar mitzvahs, there'd be a lot of Jewish weddings. And if you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, you know there are all sorts of incredible traditions. In fact, uh, one of them is this one here where they break a glass, right? You guys ever seen this? Maybe you saw it on TV. What they do is they'll, they'll take a glass like this, and then they'll, you know, they'll cover it up, and they'll put it right here at the altar. And then at the altar, you know what they do, right? Like they'll, they'll do the ceremony, they'll say their vows, they'll go eat cake, and they'll, they'll you know, they'll, they'll celebrate, they have a party, there's dancing, there's all sorts of great music. But, but you know, they'll say mazel what? Mazel? Mazel tov? But before they get to mazel tov, they've got to break the glass. Just making sure nothing got in my shoe. I think we're good. They'll do mazel tov. And here's what's interesting. Do you ever wonder why they break glass at a Jewish wedding? Well, here's why. It's supposed to symbolize the destruction of the temple. So what the rabbi does is he gathers up the, the shards of broken glass. He gathers them up, and they, the couple, they get the shards. And what they do is they put them on their mantle. And it's a reminder... That even though on this day that we celebrate your wedding, on this day when we celebrate all these wonderful things that are happening, there is still pain in this world. It's there. You know what I think is interesting? If you actually look at this symbolism from the perspective of Jesus, 
Some of you guys know this. What was one of the names that Jesus referred to him as? He was, he called himself the what? The? The temple, right? He said, tear down this temple and I'll raise it up in when? How many, how long? Three days. You see, this broken glass is a reminder that you know what? There is pain in life, but it's temporary. See, because as long as we believe in the resurrection, we know that Jesus himself is going to wipe away every tear. We know that pain will one day end. We know that brokenness will one day end. So the truth is, in this life, yes, we're going to experience pain and sorrow, just like Jesus did on the cross. His life was shattered. It was shattered for us. There will always be pain and sorrow in this world as long as we're here. But there will be a time when the pain and sorrow will be gone. Because we can cling to the hope that Jesus won for us on the cross. That one day, every knee will, every tear will be wiped away. On your way out, um, when you walk out of here, I've got this sea glass. Don't worry, it's not sharp. It's not like these. But I want to encourage you on your way out to grab one of these. And maybe put it somewhere where you need to be reminded that your pain will one day be, will come to an end. It's always going to be there. Pain will always be there. Suffering will always be there. But one day, because of the resurrection of Christ, our pain will be erased. And there will be peace and there will be hope. And that's the hope we can hold on to. Just like Jewish couples, they have these, these shards of glass. It's a reminder that one day, you know, even though pain is present, it's temporary. So we can keep moving forward because we have hope. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we look to you, Father, for direction and for hope and for healing, even when things are not going our way, even when it seems that you're silent, Lord, we look to you for help and wholeness and healing. Father, I think it's so interesting, the symbolism of glass, because glass can be melted and reformed and reshaped. Father, you use suffering in our lives. You don't cause it, but you use it to reform us and to reshape us so that we can be used by you to bless this broken world. So, Father, would you right now take our pain? Right now, church, why don't you go ahead and hold your hands out like this? This is a way of symbolizing that you want to give your pain to Jesus whatever it is that's in your cup today. Just hold your hands out like this. Father, would you take the broken shards in our lives, melt them and reform them into something new so we can be blessed to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us. We pray that today's message encouraged and inspired you. If you live in the Williamsport region of PA, we'd love to engage you in person. You can find more information on service times, city groups, and our incredible kids and youth ministry at citylions.org. That's citylions.org.